Let us pray. God, we give thanks for the gift of music, the gift of children, the gift of worship, and most certainly the gift of this, your word. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us, you would open us to hear your word afresh and to see you and your beauty, your goodness, and your holiness. And so be transformed in this, our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you listen closely, you'll, you'll, you'll notice, or you may already know, uh, this scripture is, is a, a significant space out of which we base our order for Sunday morning worship. We, we begin in praise and, and, and recognizing the holiness and goodness of God. And, and then in light of that, we see our own sin and we're drawn right into a space of confession. And we did a prayer of confession and then we, our assurance of forgiveness is named. And after being assured of that forgiveness, we hear a fresh word from the Lord, the sermon. And having heard the word of the Lord, we sense ourselves sent. And the remaining part of our service of worship is all ways that we respond to God. We are sent with the rest of our worship and our singing and our praying and our giving and even how we walk out of the sanctuary. And so what you get in Isaiah chapter 6 is something of, of the ark of a service of worship, which is really in many ways also the ark of life. Listen now to God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our New Testament scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Another encounter with the holy that leads to a confession of sin. Once, while Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out on them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. 
When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Where were you on December 7th, 1941? And if you were on this earth, do you remember how you felt? Where were you November 22nd, 1963? And if you were on this earth, do you remember how you felt? Where were you April 4th, 1968? And if you were on this earth, do you remember how you felt? Where were you September 11th, 2001? And if you were on this earth, do you remember how you felt? In the year King Uzziah died is how the scripture begins in Isaiah chapter 6. In a year, a significant and painful event shook an entire people. King Uzziah was the king of Judea, the southern kingdom, for 52 years. And though his pride got the better of him towards the end, his, his reign was largely known as one in which the economy grew, the military grew, there was stability, there was strength, there was largely a faithfulness to God. And then he died. In the year when a good and sure foundation Cracked, broke, died. In our lives or our family or our church or our nation. That is the setting for Isaiah chapter 6. And in the year King Uzziah died, what does Isaiah record happened? Everything fell apart. All was, was turmoil and confusion and just an angst about what was coming next. Those may have all been very genuine and real feelings. But what Isaiah records is that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lofty. Not too long ago, I was listening to a podcast of an interview with Dr. Kate Baller. She's a professor at Duke Divinity, and in 2015... She was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at age 35, married a very young child then. To this day, she's still doing treatment and and going through it. But the the interviewer at one point asks her, could you say more about what it means that God is present in this space? And her reply was, well, you know, she was going along. She was working hard, dreaming dreams. Quote, and then all of a sudden, in the worst moments of my life, I'm thrown into constant hospital world. 
and an anxious look on everyone's face and a sense of looming despair. Weirdly enough, I realized that the new world I was living in was a place where God lived somehow. And I honestly couldn't quite figure it out. I'm still kind of baffled that this terrible time has been the most important time in my life, that everything has felt brand new again. In the year King Uzziah died, in the year the foundation of my very health and the prospects of my life on this earth cracked quite greatly. In that year, I saw the Lord. In fact, I found the Lord lives in that space, is what she records. Isaiah, you heard, said, I saw the Lord seated, situated, settled, in control. Though so much is unknown and cracking and breaking, I see more clearly than ever one who abides, who is sovereign, who is faithful. Isaiah, you heard, he goes on, he he sees the Lord seated high and lofty in the hem of his robe fills the temple. And so it starts to become clear that, yes, Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord, but it seems like only so much of the Lord. We don't get much description of, of God's self. We get a description of God's clothing, or really just the hem of the robe is described as being right before him. This very tangible sign right in the temple, right in his midst of God's goodness God's presence, God's beauty, God's strength. But then otherwise, it's like God seems to tower above. And as he looks up, we hear there's smoke filling the temple. It's it's shaking. Uh, We we do get uh, some description of these seraphs, these angelic-like beings circling above the Lord, singing holy, holy, holy. It is at once proximate, real, and tangible, and then uh, other. And quite mysterious. I was uh, reading recently about this tree called Hypernion. Have you heard of this? It's a a redwood in uh, the Redwood National Forest. And at 600 some years old and nearly, what is it, 380 feet, it's, it's purported to be the tallest tree in the world. And people who stumble upon it or who kind of know where it is are loath to tell you where it's located or its coordinates, lest tourists trample it and destroy the root system and all the rest. But I've seen a per- picture of a person next to it, and, and you see this little speck of a person in this 24-inch diameter base, and you can just see how real and full and beautiful that base is right there. You can smell it feel it, touch it, all of it. But then you look up and you quickly realize that the vast majority of that tree, you cannot comprehend its height or width or how it is at work as what is going on. And to my mind, when I read about that tree and those great redwoods, I think about what it is to encounter a holy God. For Isaiah encounters at once the hem and the holy, the very present, tangible beauty right in his midst in the temple, filling the temple. At the same time, there is this mysterious holiness that is not entirely comprehensible, and and I think he finds even, ultimately, there's beauty in that. I wonder if we have stilled long enough in our lives recently to know ourselves the hem, and the holy. 
I like Howard Thurman's reflection. He says, there must always be remaining in every life some place for the singing of angels. Some place for that which is in itself breathless and beautiful. Which is to say, no matter whether it's the year of King Uzziah or not, there must be in every life time and space to still and name the very tangible present real ways the hem is there through scripture, through one another, through creation. There must be very tangible real space and time to sit before the holy and the beauty and the mystery. Because as Howard Thurman knows and as Isaiah is about to experience, those kind of stillness and those moments are not some kind of escapist spirituality in the midst of all the crazy. Actually what they know is that to stand before the hem and the holy is the beginning of a process of transformation. To stand before the holy is ultimately not, not just to stand in awe and thanks, but ultimately one is led into a space of confession, which is always the starting point for any kind of genuine change. Right, you heard Isaiah, he is before the, the magnificent hem and the, the, the amazing holiness of God. And, and what is his response? Woe is me, I'm, I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees himself in light of this beauty, this goodness, and sees his profound shortcomings, his shames, his failures, his brokenness. And he speaks of his lips being unclean, not because he understands the lips to be the seed of all sin, but more in the vein of Jesus who said, it is what comes out of the mouth that makes a person unclean. It is is our words that often betray what is in the heart. And so to say my lips are unclean is is really to, to signal a sense that what is within is unclean. And you notice he points out that not only does he sense himself to be unclean and confessing his sin, he also sees more clearly society is unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. I think the church, sometimes we debate, well, it's, it's really personal and individual sins that we, we need to address and, and, and redeem one by one. No, it's, it's societal, it's structural evils that have a grip on, on so many of us, greed and, and racism and classism. And, and Isaiah, he stands before holy God and it is both, the individual and the corporate. I am sinful, we are sinful, I see it more clearly than ever in front of you. And so there Isaiah ultimately stands completely exposed, quite frankly, in his failures and his shames and his people's failures and his people's shames. And it makes you wonder why anyone would ever want the year of King Uzziah to happen, why anyone would want to still overly long before a holy and good God if there's even any chance of being exposed. I think that is actually one of the most terrifying things for many in our culture to consider. I was reading this article uh, by David Brooks, New York Times columnist, a couple, couple weeks ago, called The Cruelty of Call-Out Culture. And he, he relays uh, this story about a 30-year-old uh, woman in Richmond, Virginia, 
Emily, and she's part of a punk band, and, and she gets word that one of the band members, a good friend of hers actually, had once sent sexually explicit photos to someone else, and, and of course this is deeply upsetting. So she goes on social media and, and um, calls him out on it, denounces him, disowns him, uh, and very soon he is. He is kicked out of the band. He actually, it, it, it really hits him. He, he's, he loses his job and his apartment, and he has to move to a new city, um, where last she heard he's not doing that great. Uh, but then a little bit later, it comes out that Emily herself, once uh, a couple times in high school, uh, did some cyberbullying, and those posts were found and brought back out, and, um, and quickly there was a national sentiment against her, hatred from all different directions. Oh, she was kicked out of the band, out of the entire Richmond punk scene, actually. She reported living for days on end in sort of this, the darkness of her room, in this fear and this loneliness. She said to the interviewer, it's, it's entirely my life, like... Like this, my friends, the, the, the band, the scene, is everything to me, and it's all just done and over. And, and the guy who, who called her out doesn't really even know her, um, said in the interview, I, he had no remorse or regret. He said, actually, quote, it gave me a rush of pleasure to name the truth of another's wrong. The interviewer pressed a little bit and eventually found that this particular guy had in his upbringing, known a remorseless amount of beatings from his own father. Brooks writes, in this small story, we see something of the maladies that shape our brutal cultural moment. You see how zealotry is often fueled by people working out their psychological wounds. You see that when denunciation is done through social media... You can destroy people without even knowing them. There's no personal connection that allows apology and forgiveness. Now, I think at its best, if there is a best, some of this desire, this call-out culture that wants to, to see failures and sins exposed from one another in our past comes from a place and ache in every one of our hearts for what is true and right and good and just to win the day. The problem is, the way we go about this ends up being more like a consuming fire of judgment that just burns and destroys once the exposure is known. You are banned. You are set aside. Here we will circle up and stone this one, not unlike the Pharisees in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. And so our pursuit of purity does not in fact purify anything. The fire of calling out to one another seems to just build with a certain rage looking to take down the wrongs and ultimately destroy and if you're not part of the fire or you're a little worried about the fire, what happens is, 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 is other people just quietly grow more fearful about being found out or messing up or saying or doing the wrong thing. Woe to me. Woe is me, Isaiah says. He is experiencing that profound sense of being exposed. And is there a looming Fire coming my way. And in fact, there is. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, 
Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. It turns out God also wields fire. But rather than casting Isaiah out, God, by way of this seraph emissary, draws quite near unto the lips of Isaiah and presses right into that raw shame with healing forgiveness, a tinging, a blotting out. It is not that the good news that we proclaim in Jesus Christ, that ultimately it wasn't a seraph that came our way, but it was God's very self in Jesus Christ who came our way. We have in Jesus Christ not a God who runs from the sinner and the one deserved to be called out, but in fact runs toward. We have a God that does not ostracized and put away the sinner, but in fact hangs condemned and identified as one of the sinners. We have a God who does not put the others, the sinners over here, but in fact draws so near as to eat with them, talk with them, teach to them, and die for them. And I've wondered, especially in our day and our time, what it would look like for the church to be the people of Jesus Christ in this manner, a, a people who do not condone or overlook our sin or the sin of one another or, or the sin out there. Not at all. In fact, as our passage points out, there is something good and right and even necessary uh, 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 about sins and evils laying before the light exposed and confessed. But... What would it look like for, for, for the church then to see the sin of one another and still somehow try to be the people who do not then pick up the fires of destruction and banishment and denouncement, but instead the fires of forgiveness? I mean, what if the church were, were primarily known as the emissaries of live coals upon lips of those who deserve to be called out? I think of Martin Luther King Jr. He preached a sermon on Christmas Day, 1957 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church on loving your enemies, loving the people you can't stand, you don't like, the people who have done wrong to you, the people who have done wrong to a whole lot of people, actually. The people who are, in, the people who are deeply impure. The people who need to be called out. Enemies. What's the priority, Martin Luther King Jr.? First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It's impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemy without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again of forgiving those who inflict evil and injury upon us. And he goes on and says, now look, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what's been done or putting a false label on the evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Certainly one can never forget. I love this. But when we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Hear that again. When we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block 
impeding a new relationship. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. The seraph draws near to the lips of Isaiah and presses against the raw shame, and there is a reconciliation between Isaiah and God. And I wonder where we this day might ache for that kind of fire to touch our lives, our relationships, our nation. I wonder if this morning some of us ourselves might be open to receiving that fire afresh upon our exposed lips. I wonder if some of us on this particular morning might sense a call to drop the destructive fires and gossip that can feel so good and right and pick up live coal that might be pressed upon the lips of enemies. In the new space of reconciliation between God and Isaiah, The Lord has a fresh word for this new season in the year King Uzziah died. Whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And, And Isaiah has learned that with this God, he can trust this God with the darkest stuff, the ugliest stuff, the grittiest stuff, the doubts, the pains, the hurts. He's been totally exposed. If I can trust you with that and I'm not crushed by that, I can trust you with anything. And so I'm always amazed Isaiah He has no idea what God has in store for him. No idea where he's going to go. And actually, it's a very difficult call, we come to find out. He has no idea. And still he says, if I could trust you with the darkness, I'll trust you with anything. I'm about that kind of fire. Here I am. Send me. In the year King Uzziah died, and a significant foundation shook. I saw the hem in the holy so much more clearly. In the year King Uzziah died, and a significant foundation shook, we are given to see ourselves and ourselves more clearly. And there's terror and and, and pain in that thought, but there's actually great beauty, right? Because the confession and the openness of that is the beginning of transformation. Because in the year of King Uzziah and the breaking of a significant foundation, that is also the same year that we lay raw and exposed and know the mercy of a hot, coal, singeing, blotting out, forgiving. So that in the year of King Uzziah, and the year of significance foundation breaks, it also turns out that is the year the Lord speaks a fresh word, a new word, has a new calling. And with surprising courage, we find ourselves saying, here I am, send me. And so, whatever measure of instability you may be facing in your personal life, family life, church, nation, world, May the Lord grant it to you to know that with our God in the year of King Uzziah, that which feels awful and terrifying and out of control is also the same space, the same season, the same year of new clarity, new healing, and a new calling. 
And given the times in which we live, I have to wonder if part of the new calling for many in the church is to be emissaries of live coal upon enemy lips. Givers of that most sacred gift which we have and do receive. Amen.